In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you want to live, if you really want to live, live for something greater than yourself and be bold about it. I wonder what cause or movement it is that gets you out of bed in the morning. The movement that animates me is environmental justice, the flourishing of the earth community, stable climate, and just society for all God's creatures. So as Earth Day approaches, I'd like to speak with you about climate change because solving it is central to our walk with Jesus. Consider today's gospel, which asks, how are we to live in light of Christ's cross and resurrection? The disciples are confused and terrified. Jesus appears after having appeared to two of them on the road to Emmaus and and to the women in the garden. Now they're in Jerusalem, and he asks them for something to eat to show that he's not a ghost or a phantasm. He shows his flesh and bones, and then he does an in-depth Bible study with them, opening their minds to understand the scriptures, and we are witnesses of these things. And wouldn't you like to be a fly on that wall? Making sense of all of the scriptures with Jesus? Absolutely, sign me up for that class. And then he sends the disciples and us out to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And here's the kicker. Right after class, he's not available for questions. He ascends into heaven. And so we're left to ask with the disciples, what then are we to do in light of this cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What are we then to do with our lives? How are we to live? And I'd like to make the case that climate justice in particular opens a powerful way for us to engage Jesus' message and work of reconciliation, restoration of all things in the world. Hear his summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, which means as important. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. Then in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 25, this great summary of what it means to live in the world, Jesus tells all the gathered nations, pansa te etne in Greek, I was hungry and thirsty and a stranger and sick. And the truth is that Climate change affects every single one of those issues. And also, Jesus is not just talking to me or you or just individuals, but rather to all the gathered nations. And that's significant for us because scientists tell us that we are passing the brink of disaster. We need seismic change to avoid catastrophe. The time has come to rebuild the way all the gathered nations conduct our business. Indeed, far from a partisan squabble, climate change is a gospel issue and one that we can reclaim from the political rancor of our day. 
So as we seek to, to love and serve Christ in all persons, may we also come to know Christ in the vital link between climate and hunger and thirst and refugees and sickness and the least of these who Jesus calls members of my family. As we hear in Matthew 25, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry? The drought of 2013 spiked world corn prices by 30%. And though we didn't much notice the change in our grocery stores, that's because when we buy a box of cornflakes, we're paying more for the cardboard than for the corn. But for the 2 billion people who live on less than $1 a day, that 30% cost increase was grave. Lord, when was it that we saw you thirsty? Warm air holds more water, and so the dry spots get drier, the deserts get bigger, and the wet spots get wetter. We start to see epic droughts and fires in places like the American Southwest, Los Angeles, California, New Mexico. And when the water comes gushing down in other latitudes, it's the kind of gully washers that don't do anyone any, any good. The rainstorms are often strong enough to flood, and the droughts and the floods threaten drinking water, but they also damage our crops. They make it hard for us to feed ourselves. Lord, when was it that we saw you sick? All across the world, disease vectors like mosquitoes and ticks and leeches are affected by frost. Take, for example, Nairobi, Kenya. There, mosquitoes spread malaria and yellow fever, and they die as water freezes. So Nairobi used to lie safely above the frost line that kills these bugs during a hard freeze in Kenya. But as the frosts come later and lighter, Nairobi has experienced higher infection rates of malaria and yellow fever. And the city will probably be frost-free by 2100. And so it turns out that public health takes a hit when cities get hungry and thirsty and crowded. And indeed, climate change makes the poor communities in those cities sicker. But we also place a burden on poor folks when we mine and burn fossil fuels. We know that coal smoke and fracking fluid and oil refineries and ports make people sick. And those urban blights punish poor neighborhoods disproportionately. And Jesus, when was it that we saw you a stranger? Just yesterday, we learned that Alaska's Moldau Glacier is moving 100 times faster than normal this summer, as much as 90 feet per day. And the oceans rise when the land ice melts. Over time, hundreds of millions of people will be forced to flee their homes. Then these climate refugees will become strangers in a foreign land, And friends, the reality is the immigration of desperately poor people presents a challenge that few countries have met with compassion. Out in the ocean, warmer water makes for stronger, wetter, and more ocean storms. These storms get our attention because they're extremely expensive and they cause damage and they kill people. Think about the floating corpses in the Ninth Ward in Treme in New Orleans salt water in the subway of New York City after Hurricane Sandy, or the spring floods in the Philippines. Sandy was expensive and inconvenient for us on the East Coast, but it killed people in Haiti. 
Katrina dominated the news in 2006, but 15 years later, its real legacy may be the defunded school system after people abandoned land and stopped paying taxes in poor neighborhoods like the Ninth Ward and Treme and St. Augustine's in New Orleans. Almost always, poor communities suffer from disasters first and hardest and longest, the class bias. Think about the Titanic, right? Who gets on the lifeboats? Who stays on board? Who gets locked below decks in third class? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Notice that phrase, members of my family. I don't think Jesus is talking about service in the demeaning sense of the word, where we sort of bend down and deign to help for a day and then go back to our enclaves. I think he's talking about life-changing, mutually beneficial relationship rooted in love. The kind of love that we feel for members of our family, our moms and dads and brothers and sisters, grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, our grandkids. And I like thinking about our kids and grandkids and their kids because that's the kind of timeline we're thinking about. In Bill McKibben's words, our goal must be to make real the gospel with its injunction to love our neighbors, not to drown them, not to sicken them, not to make it impossible for them to grow crops, but to love them. And so it is that God calls us now to tell a prophetic new story. The old story says, I'm in it for me and you're in it for you and may the best man win. But God's story of Shalom says we are all on the same boat, facing a storm of our own causing. Jesus does not teach us to pray, give me this day my daily bread, but rather give us this day our daily bread, enough for all. In God's story of Shalom, our political economy looks absurd because money no longer buys influence, but love and story does. Love and ideas and people become power. And that story certainly starts with changing light bulbs and carpools, but ultimately we are called to change systems. And all of that starts here with you and with me. More than just calling your senator and asking them to do something, please, we can build solutions here and now. We can build local climate solutions that are small enough to manage and big enough to matter. We can mobilize pockets of political will and catalyze local know-how, crack open windows of opportunity, and that's when things actually happen. Parks get built, and gardens get planted, and laws get passed, and markets emerge. Praying shapes believing, and this is most certainly true, but you know what else shapes believing is doing. Doing shapes believing, too, and indeed, God has work for us to do. And I want to illustrate this point with a story. My last year in seminary, I was part of a student group, and we had a little bit of money left in our budget, and we were feeling totally demoralized after the collapse of whatever climate talks had just collapsed that year. I think it was Copenhagen, but I can't remember. And we read this article by Michael Pollan saying, given all that, I'm still going out to my backyard with my kids, and I'm going to plant a garden. So we said, okay, maybe it won't do a whole lot, but let's go for it. 
His rationale, by the way, was that it would build relationships with the community, with the neighborhood. It would grow some food. It would get people thinking. It would create an awareness. And along the way, think of other opportunities for us to be part of the solution. And I liked that. So we talked to the dean, and knowing this guy, his name was Harry Attridge, 7 a.m. the next day we had a meeting. We're walking around the entire campus, and it's very early and very quick. And by 7.20, we had chosen a location, and we had figured out where the water was going to come from. And that was pretty much it. And I want to tell you, this was country club lawn on the top of the hill next to the university president's house, a bunch of lawyers and doctors on both sides. Well, what could go wrong? So the next day, the, uh, Mark, a really great guy, drove a bulldozer to the middle of the country club lawn, dug a giant hole in it, and then drove off at 7.15 and said, don't tell him it was me. And so there were six of us there that Friday morning with some shovels and some grand ambitions. And we start trying to like, turn this hole into some kind of garden. And about 11 o'clock, it starts raining. And I don't mean like a little bit of rain. I mean like downpour. So we're digging in the mud, and it's raining, and there's six of us, and we're truly panicked. So we go inside, we take a lunch break, and we say, well, you know, that was a nice idea, but now we have a little bit of a disaster on our hands. And we got to thinking, you know, the six of us are never going to be able to figure this out, but we know a lot of people who might be able to. So we all got out our phones, and the rest of the afternoon, instead of digging in the rain, we called everybody we knew. We texted everybody we knew. And the next day, at 7 a.m., 20 people showed up. And somebody had gone to Home Depot and gotten some mulch. And somebody had gotten some, some potting soil. And somebody had gotten some plants. And somebody had gotten some seeds. And I'm not saying we didn't have a plan, but we didn't have that good a plan. And suddenly, because it's not just a committee meeting to think about a proposal, but there's a hole in the ground that needs to get fixed by the end of the weekend, people came out of the woodwork. And at the end of that day, over 60 people showed up, and we turned this muddy hole in the middle of a country club lawn into a beautiful community garden with tomatoes and blackberries and onions and scallions and wildflowers and sunflowers and all kinds of beautiful things going, and rose and potting soil and mulch, and it was a thing. And you know, over the course of that summer, somebody brought a picnic table, and somebody brought a barbecue grill, and somebody brought a shed, and somebody built a compost bin. And all those things happened because there was something to respond to. There was an idea that had turned into reality, and there was a piece of ground where you could put your shovel in. As Zach said just yesterday in a conversation, don't jump too quickly to make a metaphor. Just actually put a soil in the actual (laughs) hole (laughs) and actually put a plant in it. And I love that story because it illustrates to me the power of starting anyway. I wonder if we can do that here, to look for excuses to start anyway. It's in our DNA, you know. That's how we went from the night shelter to covenant community. That's, in a way, how threads came to be. And I'm not saying that plans don't matter, but I am saying that once there's a thing to do, you figure out how to solve the problem really quickly because you have to. There's people waiting in line, you know. I've never done this before. Start anyway. This could be hard. Start anyway. What if we make mistakes? Start anyway. I'm too busy and we don't have enough volunteers. Start anyways. How will we pay for it? 
Start anyways. Who's going to lead the committee? Start anyway. Who will be on the committee? Start anyway. Should we even have a committee? Start anyway. It's not that those questions are irrelevant. We need to solve them, but we'll just solve them more quickly and more effectively when we do it in real time. And so I invite you to dare to be like the early Christians whose principal public leader was nobody else except for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was the leader of that church. And you know what happened? They lived God's new story. And they saw what possibilities emerged. And we can do that too and see what relationships grow and what love we might encounter, what God has in store for us. The truth is on climate and so many other issues, the time has come for bold leadership. And it turns out that we followed Jesus who led boldly and even gave his life Indeed, tables might get turned and the mighty might stumble, but we follow an even mightier God who stared down Pharaoh and walked Israel out of Egypt. Announcing the dawn of a new age is indeed risky business, but that's precisely what Jesus did. Now is our time. And God says to tell a new story. God says to live a new story. For the sake of our children and grandchildren, a movement is building. Another world is not only possible, she is on her way, writes the poet Arundhati Roy. On a quiet day, we can hear her breathing. Alleluia, alleluia, and amen.